Kara. Hey, Chris. Let's talk about who we're talking to today. Uh, well, we're going to talk about self-medication. We're talking to Caitlin Plasek from Ball State University. She goes by Katie about a co-authored paper she's first author of called Exploring Biocultural Models of Chewing Tobacco and Pawn Among Reproductive-Aged Women, Self-Medication Protection and Gender Inequality. And one of the questions of this paper is, who smokes what, when, and why? Is basically exactly. not just smokes, exactly. but chews. A lot of chewing of different... Yeah. Like, I'm super excited to like get some information about some of these plants and substances that I know very little about. Yeah, I love a good psychoactive, like you, you just grabbed me right out of the gate with two of the most widely used psychoactive plant substances worldwide. And I'm like, oh? <laughs> As oh. you start taking notes. Uh-huh. <laughs> Speaking of psychoactive, I've got my coffee right here. I normally would have stopped by this time in the day, but it is extenuating circumstances. I always want to try all these things. It's like when we interviewed Sarah Young, I just wanted some white dirt. Also, we should totally ask Katie. We did not put this on the list, but if she has tried any of these during her field work, that has to be a question. Yeah, of course. Participant observation, she, she has to. They mm -hmm. all sound so not good for you. Why wouldn't she try them? I mean, you got a tap, tap, tattoo when you were studying tap, tap, tattoos. I did, and then I got an infection, but that was because- But it wasn't because of the tattoo, no, right? No. Well, you know, in all fairness, yes, it wasn't sp directly because of the tattoo. It was fire ants attacking me in my own lawn. But the fact that it was on my tattoo and then I got infected, I got bit on my hand too. That one didn't get infected. I think there was a little interaction there. Probably, maybe a little bit. It's almost healed a month later. Fire ants. Oh. Giant bald spot on my leg. Hey, Katie, how are you? Hi, Katie. Good, how are you? Good. How's Muncie? Today it is overcast, so we're having some weather pattern shifts going on. Oh wait, yeah, you're at Notre Dame, right? Yeah, yeah. so we're real close. So she's above you and also on my screen, she's above you. Oh, that's funny. Anyway, Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being on with us today. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. We're super excited actually to talk about this for a number of reasons, and we actually came up with other questions to ask. They'll be easy, don't worry. <laughs> Uh, mostly if you've actually tried any of these substances and then what happened if you did. Anyway, so we always like to start our interviews with kind of learning your origin story, how you came into academia, how you came into, like why you decided to actually pursue it as a career. Well, yeah, that's a great question. So I actually originally thought I was going to become a forensic psychologist, which I don't know really how I came up with that because I never watched any of those crime shows or anything. I just like thought, like, oh, I wonder uh, why, like, I wanted to go into prisons and study criminals, basically. But then I took this criminal justice class the same semester I took an anthropology class, and it was, like, basically all over at that point. I completely switched to anthropology, and um, I continued to pursue a degree in psych and anthro. Hmm. And kind of at the end, like, because I was really torn in which direction I would ultimately go, but I just remember feeling really frustrated as an undergrad that all of the psych studies only focused on like American college students. So I was like, anthropology, they're actually trying to solve this problem. So yeah, and then around that same time, I was taking courses in evolutionary theory. And then I one day discovered that, you know, they were using this theory and applying it to humans. And this is so cool. 
So after that, I decided like the best path was a PhD in evolutionary anthropology. So I just went straight into grad school after that. Where at in college? Um, Eastern Kentucky University. Eastern Kentucky. And where'd you get your PhD for our listeners? Washington State University. So now do you watch shows like Mindhunter? No, I actually never watch any of those. I don't really watch TV. Speaking of work-life balance, but it's not because I don't have time. I just <laughs> never know what to watch. So. <laughs> I would highly recommend, given your undergraduate interest in forensic psychology, you should totally watch it. Two seasons, very worth it. Okay, absolutely. I'll watch it. I do notice there is a lot of evolutionary psychology and human behavioral ecology because I just assumed that it was from where you did your, your doctoral work, but it sounds like that's been a thread in your work for a long time. Yeah, it actually has. Like, I got really lucky as an undergrad. One of my main advisors, he was interested in evolutionary psychology. And then I had two professors who were, were doing a research project in the Galapagos. Mm. And I got to go down there twice and videotape sea lion behavior. And I was like, whoa, if this is what it, being a researcher, researcher is, like, I totally want to do it. <laughs> so I had a few opportunities as an undergrad to start, like, cultivating these interests. It was pretty cool. So this is not on your, your list, but how have you handled or have you had any blowback or controversy being an anthropologist with an evolutionary? Because I have the same background. So I have an evolutionary psychology background and I find myself embroiled in the heated animosities between, especially anthropologists toward evolutionary psychology and psychologists. Do you get that? Well, it's weird because my grad program has like a lot of diverse perspectives regarding this. Like we have an evolutionary psychologist, a human behavioral ecologist, a cultural evolutionist, and then kind of a mix of all of those there. And so I think when I got to grad school, I automatically like learned this tolerance towards all of the subfields. And like there was, there's this like sense of tolerance. People encourage questioning and testing these ideas. And so outside of that realm, I haven't really experienced much backlash. The hardest thing is being a biocultural anthropologist rather than like the backlash within evolutionary theory because I feel like everyone has kind of banded together at this point. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so I think like more of the black backlash comes from being biocultural. Yeah. What sort do you get for that? Well, it's like, are you really a biological anthropologist? Or are you really a cultural anthropologist so it's kind of like yeah yeah that's like trying to let go and that's you know like this older style of being an anthropologist that just can't really exist anymore we have to be biocultural especially like in the type of research that I do and I discovered that really early on in my dissertation research like I couldn't have just a very strict F-psych or HBE approach to studying something like diet and pregnancy because none of these exist in these vacuums. Humans are in their cultural environments and they're definitely influenced by that. Cool, I like that. So in the intro, we said that we read the paper Exploring Biocultural Models of Chewing Tobacco and Pawn Among Reproductive Aged Women, uh, Self-Medication Protection or Gender Equality. Before we actually get into what you looked at in that paper and results. Could you tell us one, how you got interested in different substance use and then also how you got into this field site? Absolutely. So I think I'll start with the field site question first because that kind of led to the topic. So I conduct research in South India primarily and this field site is located in Karnataka in Mysore district and this particular 
group of people are called the Genukrubas, and they're, they're an indigenous scheduled tribal population that used to live in the forest, and they got displaced and now live in these little villages outside of the forest. And so anyway, I found them due to a connection, a local connection I had there. So my co-authors on the paper, they work at this institute. One of them has founded the institute. And so they've, you know, established connections in all these different populations in this region, this particular region in Mysore. So they recommended when I first got there, I was trying to finish my dissertation project. They're like, hey, you know, you're an anthropologist. There's this uh, indigenous population that you might be interested in studying. So originally, I started working with them based on my research on dietary cravings and pregnancy and aversions. And so I was comparing their aversions to this neighboring group of farmers. And they had completely different pregnancy cravings, aversions, and cultural avoidances at that time. And then during that time, I realized that they're also like heavy tobacco users, the women, which really surprised me because in India, at least like in the different places I've been, I've been working, and this obviously varies across India, but tobacco is really, really taboo for women. And so I was really surprised by that. And so I also at the same time was working with Ed Hagen, who was a huge influence on this project, and he he does a ton of research on tobacco use. So if you haven't checked out his stuff, you definitely should. He's like, whoa, women are using tobacco? That's like hard to find in these types of populations, so you should definitely explore that further. So that kind of was the start of this. Then I ended up getting an NIH fellowship, so that's kind of how the two things work together. It reminds me one, we had a previous guest, Joe Weaver, who also works in Mysore, and I want you guys met this summer. Yeah, I got to meet her this summer. And then we also talked to Sarah Young about pica in Africa and pregnancy cravings, and so we have some synergy going on, it sounds like. Cool, yeah, Sarah Young. Actually, the first time I ever went to India, I was thinking, like, how do you set up a field site? So I just asked the people around me, like, what do women crave here in pregnancy? And they all said mud. And so I tried to actually study pica or geophagy at first, but then like it's super taboo there. So it's not really an easy topic to study in, in the place where I was working. But yeah, I'm a huge fan of both of their work. Fascinating. Yeah. In this study, you were looking at tobacco and pond use and areca nut. And these are different psychoactive effects. And I'm sure most of our listeners are well aware of tobacco and kind of how that operates. But my guess is most have not heard of pond and areca nut. And we were wondering if maybe you could tell us what those are and what they do. Yes. So areca nut is this nut that you can grind up or just like even break down into little smaller pieces. And you place it in a beetle leaf and that's what creates the pond. So and um, areca nut is also called beetle nut. And within pond, you can have like different combinations and different mixtures. But usually it, can, it like contains those two substances. And then you can also slap on some slaked lime. And then some people even add flaked tobacco to it as well. So this, so areca nut is really, really common in South Asia. And I think in other parts too, I'm not really sure, honestly, about the geography, but I think it's like the fourth largest used, most widely used psychoactive substance in the world. But anyway, so when you chew this, it can give you euphoric effects that are kind of short-lived. A lot of people say that it improves digestion, so they'll use it like after they 
eat a meal to help with digestion. Because it creates some euphoria, it can also reduce anxiety. That's what some people have reported. And they also say that it increases alertness and can increase body heat. But I think this depends on how much you use it. I have tried it mm. and I didn't experience anything, honestly. Um, <laughs> so I actually don't know, but I think it, there's definitely a dose effect. Is it readily available in the environment that people just go out and get it? Or is it you have to purchase at a market? Both. So you can, and like for the Jindakrubas, you can just get it off of a beetle nut tree. Yeah, so it's readily available and just natural. They don't have to buy it. But there's two different types. There are commercialized products or products for uh, pawn. And that those are like, they have a bunch of different types like Gupka. Uh, I'm kind of blanking on all the different names right they now. They have e-cigarette version now? <laughs> oh my God, I hope not. <laughs> not yet. But yes, the package products come in these little tiny packages for like one use. And it's more like sticky and dark and it contains other types of chemicals and stuff that make it even worse for you. Yeah, but in the natural form, I think it's been considered like an Ayurvedic medicine for a long time. So it does have this idea of having medicinal quality. Okay, cool. So you looked at how women and men, honestly, although the, the paper really did focus on the women and how often they were using and which types they were using. And you had three different potential hypotheses for this usage. And then the three were self-medicate, protection, and or gender inequality. Yeah. Could you walk us through the, I guess, the theory behind those three hypotheses? Yeah, so I'll start, I'll kind of flip the list and talk about gender inequality first, because that is sort of the conventional idea of substance use. So cross-nationally, particularly in terms of tobacco, where we have a lot of robust data, women are generally using tobacco products less frequently than men are. And um, this occurs especially even in developing countries where there's high fertility rates. But when you move up like the ladder uh, in more socioeconomically developed nations, there tends to be more equal use of tobacco or this less of a disparity. So a lot of researchers have thought like, oh, it's because women are less likely to use tobacco because they have less socioeconomic empowerment than men do. And so that's sort of been the conventional model. Um, but a lot of these, this approach um, hasn't really accounted for like cross-cultural differences. And in one study in Casey Roulette and Ed Hagen's research, and um, they've looked at tobacco use and the ACA, Central African Republic, where they are egalitarian. And in this study, so they, women have socioeconomic empowerment and women are still less likely than men to use tobacco. So they hypothesized that maybe something else is going on. And this kind of links back then to my research with the protection hypothesis. So Ed and his colleagues hypothesized then that, well, maybe this difference in tobacco use, the sex difference, has something to do with biologically evolved sex differences, where women have higher cost to reproduction. They might be more likely to avoid tobacco because it's like a teratogenic substance that can disrupt fetal development. And this aligns with my research, my prior research on dietary aversions where women are more likely to avoid these toxic foods um, in order to protect the fetus. And so that was kind of, that's been sort of the prevailing model that they've been using to test tobacco avoidance among women. So as I started analyzing the data and I found that women are equally likely to use tobacco and I was thinking, well, we know why they're avoiding it, but what is the evolutionary story for why they might be using it? And we don't really have an explanation for that. 
And so the third hypothesis is the self-medication hypothesis, where people are, will exploit these psychoactive substances because there's some type of benefit that outweighs the potential reproductive costs. And so with tobacco specifically, and then pawn um, can probably have similar types of effects. Tobacco can create the psychoactive effects where it or increases alertness, um, it can increase concentration, reaction time, and so there's these, so it has that type of effect which can be medicinal under nutritionally constrained environments basically. And so, but in other cases, like in Casey and Ed's work, they've looked at it in terms of how it can be an anti-helminthic or anti-parasite type of medicine. So there are different benefits. So basically in the self-medication model, it's just looking at how the benefits of using these substances outweigh the costs. So which one is better? There's some clear distributions in terms of what females do and what males do. And so I'm curious which of those was supported in, for which, which gender or was there Yeah, so this study found support for the self-medication model. Well, first I'll kind of address the gender disparity. So women and men were equally likely to use tobacco and pawn products, which was kind of a surprising finding, but not really because this is a traditionally egalitarian society, but they are a society in transition. But I think the interesting part was that there was this gender component to it where even though they're equally likely to use them, they weren't using the same products. Men are more likely to use commercialized tobacco products and pawn products and smoke, whereas women are more likely to chew the natural forms of tobacco and pawn. So I thought that was like pretty fascinating and deserves more attention than I think it has in this paper. Mm. Um, but then in terms of the hypotheses, the gender inequality model didn't support women's use of tobacco or pawn, and neither did the protection hypothesis. But the self-medication hypothesis did. So it turns out that women here are controlling for like the effect of fertility and everything. They're more likely to use uh, tobacco when they are nutritionally constrained and um, environmentally stressed and working in agricultural fields. And in the qualitative part, they were talking about how they use these, they use tobacco in order to enhance work performance. Mm -hmm. And it's likely like kind of that's what's happening in this scenario. Yeah, so you mentioned specifically iron deficiency, and I guess I don't know if it is a mechanistic pathway of how this works, how tobacco or pawn uh, or areca nut, how this can be a self-medication form for iron deficiency. Yeah, so iron deficiency can deplete like the cognitive functions associated with fatigue. It can deplete like your ability to remember things. And it has like a lot of these cognitive effects that actually when you uh, smoke or chew tobacco, tobacco kind of creates a substitute for those effects. So tobacco can increase alertness and memory and work performance. So what I'm thinking here is that tobacco basically is giving them the energy and work motivation to maintain working in the agricultural fields given this constraint. So it treats the symptoms of iron deficiency and doesn't actually treat the iron deficiency itself. Absolutely, okay. yeah. For me in this paper, I think the major public health message is that when we're looking at iron deficiency anemia, especially in India, and trying to also eradicate tobacco use, like these aren't single issues. <laughs> like we need to look at both simultaneously, right? Because you can't just say, oh, stop using tobacco if there's something else going on that is a pretty severe problem. You had mentioned earlier that the market forms of these substances contain a lot of extra chemicals and things that are really, really bad for you. Is there a public health push at all in this area to 
cut back on those forms and go back to the one that just you can take off the tree? Yeah, well, I don't know if they're really reducing the availability, but they do have those very graphic images on all of the products that are way more terrifying than the ones we have here. So I think, like, I don't know how effective those are. I have a question about, you mentioned the dose response when you tried it. So I'm curious what their use habits are. Are, are these things they're using all day long, or is it when they become fatigued? I think that's a great question. I didn't address that in this study, the timing of use and associate it with these feelings. I think that's a great follow-up study, but a lot of them are using it very frequently. So I did collect like frequency within a given, like the average day of use. And some of them report using it over 20 times a day. Some report using it maybe once a day. So there is a variation in terms of frequency of use. Are they like chewing tobacco where they're spitting constantly? Is, are there stigmas associated with it like we associate with chewing? No, and also like the chewing tobacco there isn't like our chewing tobacco. It's like in a powdered form. Mm. So um, I also have a picture of that I can share with you. It's like a little, it's in this little clear baggie and it's uh, powdered. I think flaked is a better way to describe it. And mm. so they might wrap it up in a beetle leaf and just pop it in their mouth and then they'll spit whenever they need to spit. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. What are the beaties? The beaties, are they little cigarettes? Yeah, they're like tiny, but they're like, they. I think they're rolled with little uh, leaves. Like, I don't know what kind of leaves they use. I'll have to look that up. I haven't, um, but the men are the ones who are smoking beaties. They're in, wrapped in these little brown leaves. Hmm. They hide, and they come in this little package of like 20 beaties for like 50 cents. Are they addictive like we associate with cigarettes and nicotine here in the States? Yeah, I mean, they have nicotine in them. So people will just constantly, yeah, and they talk about it as being an addiction, for sure. Hmm. Because part of it, I know from reading Dan Lende's work on incentive salience and wanting is Part of it's the oral fixation and the doing something and the like as a, it's almost like a pivot as something to do in downtime and there's a little bit of that as well as the nicotine and the direct chemical interaction. For sure because also here it's not just like time pass and boredom but like they have also these other cultural models for why they use it like a lot of times they'll say they do it to increase heat in the body you know, when it's cold outside or raining, it makes them want to smoke more. So there are these other contexts around why they're using it aside from just like a physical addiction. Oh. And also the genocribus, I just now remembered this, they, sometimes they use it to treat a toothache. So they'll take either the pawn or the tobacco and use it to treat toothaches. They just stick it in there or they chew it? I don't know. I didn't ask that, but I probably chew at the site of pain. Oh. Yeah, there's probably something to that. That's cool. So how do you want to move this forward? Kind of what's in the future for you? So with this topic, I just published, my colleagues and I just published a paper in Field Methods on studying tobacco use in this particular, with this particular population. So that is a paper that just came out like a few days ago. So listeners can check that out. But also I still have data on this topic for between the um, men and women in the urban region, but the urban women don't report any tobacco use. So I think probably the next step is to look at test these hypotheses with the men, uh, the men's data that I have and adolescents. So I also have that data for them as well in urban and rural. 
my story. When you say urban women don't report use, does it mean they are not using or they are not reporting because of stigma against it, do you think? I think they're not reporting because of stigma, but they're also like genuinely less likely to use it. So that's why I think especially with this group, it's important to have some type of biomarker to establish use patterns. So you have a lot of different projects going on. I know. I know. Just briefly, I'm just for listeners' sake and <laughs> so we can like be envious and jealous of your productivity. What all do you have going on? Locally, so in Muncie, when I got here, I quickly discovered that there's a large opioid crisis that is, you know, is characteristic of most of the country, but it's pretty bad here. So I thought it was a great opportunity to start a local project where I could train students. So I teamed up with two other people at my university and we've developed this uh, multi-level project on opioid use. And it kind of led to me developing a lab here. And I have students going out and doing interviews with women in the treatment program. And yeah, we have all kinds of stuff going on with that project right now. So it's underway and we're still collecting data. But that's like really... Great, because it's a way to engage with the community. It led to a service learning class and all kinds of stuff in that realm. And then I also am continuing doing research in India, and I'm slowly but surely establishing a project on pregnancy fasting. Hmm. So um, there's a lot of variation in different religious groups there and whether or not women are fasting or not for religious reasons or for other reasons. And so that's kind of a spinoff from my dissertation research. So those are like the two main things that I'm really focusing on right now. Oh, we need to get some resting metabolic rates of those women. Yeah. Being fasted and unfasted. That would be amazing. That would be um, really cool. Because there's so much variation in metabolic rate and pregnancy across the world. There is no single pattern that we see. And that would be really cool. How do you manage your work-life balance? What do you do for fun? So I do a lot of yoga and I also have this little dog who forces me to have work-life balance because she's kind of needy. So she requires, like, I have to at least come home and like take her on a walk. <laughs> when you say little dog, what, are we, what kind of dog are we talking about? She's a Pekingese oh. and she's almost 14 and she's completely blind and deaf, except when I say the word treat in a really high-pitched tone. That's the only thing she can hear now. Oh. And, like the ruffling of the bag. But I also like take long walks. I just try to like, you know, socialize. I just try to maintain a life outside of work, even if it's in smaller increments, you know, some days, but. Also along those lines, what are you reading? We know you aren't watching anything. <laughs> are you reading or listening to anything fun in your abundant spare time? Yeah, I just started reading the book. Oh, what's it called? Gods of the Upper Air. Wait, is that yes. what it's called? It's the one about Margaret Mead and Boaz. I just read the first chapter two days I just ago. I bought it, so I'm super excited. Yeah, and that's really good. So I just started reading that one. But yeah, I try to like read something regularly. Normally something non-anthropological. I mean, because I'm reading anthropology stuff all day long. But this one, I really wanted to check out. Is there anything you want to promote? I guess I just promoted the new paper and... What's its name? What's the title of this paper? Mixed Methods oh, and Repeated Measures in Substance Use Research, Implications for Informant Accuracy. And which journal? Um, field Methods. Field Methods, wonderful. And how can people get a hold of you if you're willing to share any contact information if they want to ask you more about your work? I'm on Twitter, so... And I just canceled my Facebook account because it's 
too distracting. But Twitter, I like it because it's like a great way to stay connected to everyone's work. So I use that mostly just for, you know, academic purposes. Anthro Yogi 4? Yep, Anthro Yogi 4. And I actually don't want that to be my name anymore, but you can't change it like you can change it on Instagram. So whatever, stuck with it. Chris, how can people get a hold of you? They can find me at Chris underscore LY. I also don't want that to be mine, but <laughs> it was, it's a joke that no one ever got, but I'm stuck with it and whatever. What about you, Kara? I'm at Kara Akabak, and I'm good with mine because it's my name. That was a smart decision. <laughs> I think you're going to be a and What's logical that? and findable. Well, we've been the Sausage of Science for the Human Biology Association, and Caroline Owens is the one who's going to make us sound really, really good. Katie, thank you so much for being on. We really appreciate you giving up some time to talk about your really awesome work. Everyone, thank you all for listening. Uh, please like us, share us, and rate us on all of your various podcast platforms. <laughs> <laughs>